And so, so humanity had to weirdly had forgotten uh, the science and had to rediscover it because the problem had gone away. Welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Jeffrey A. Tucker, the editorial director at the American Institute for Economic Research, was my guest on today's show. They have been publishing a lot of material that has been highlighting the lack of evidence being produced to support the idea that that lockdowns are effective at preventing the spread of COVID-19. These are massive and unprecedented measures, and now we have almost a year's worth of data to examine how effective our attempts around the world have been in dealing with the pandemic, and I think it's right to discuss whether these measures have been effective and proportionate. We all want the best for our individual countries and families, and having a robust discussion about how we achieve that is the best way to do that. This was a really interesting and educational interview for me, and I hope you get something out of it. This episode is also the first that is available to watch on YouTube. We've moved to video and it's all very exciting. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So here's Jeffrey A. Tucker. So, Jeffrey, thank you very much for agreeing to, to come on my podcast. Mm-hmm, my pleasure. Yeah, you're going to be the first video episode that I actually uh, release. As I'm going to, uh, I'm not putting this in the pipeline. This is just going. The next one that I put out will be will be this episode. Just to feel it's topical. <laughs> okay. So um, yeah, uh, well, I, I guess we just start with um, before we before we begin. I wanted to make sure we just lay out that for anyone listening, what we're going to discuss here is not us saying that we want to be callous and we want to say that, you know, let's just let people die. Like the genuine discussion we want to have is, is whether the, the trade-off between um, masks and lockdowns and, and all these measures that are being put in place by governments are worth it and um, are proportional to the, the threat and are not causing more harm than, than good. So I, I guess I just want to start by, by laying that on the table to make sure people don't think we're just saying, no, just let everyone die. That's, that's a much better option. <laughs> You know, one of the funny things about the, about the lockdown lockdowners is that there's an ethos among these people that that um, that some people are entitled to uh, be disease free and others are not. Uh, it's it's actually kind of grim. Uh, you know, you've got this sort of overclass ruling class of of Zoom based workers, you know, uh, who can sit at home all the time, and it's actually despicable um, that, that they don't. They're not, this is not the working class. They love posting on Twitter and um, they love lockdowns because it forces, forces everybody else. I don't know if they think about it this way, but they're forcing everybody else's society to bear the burden of herd immunity. You know, they, given that we cannot, you know, delete this virus from the, from the history of the trajectory of the millions of viruses that have, that have come, come unto us as human beings and the pathogens are just a, a, a very much part of the social order, always have been, um, this virus has to go somewhere. And the way primitive societies deal with, with this kind of thing is that they segregate themselves. They, 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 the elites uh, hide 
and then force uh, the workers and peasants and the slaves and the unclean to bear the burden of herd immunity until until they build up immunities, and then and then the overclass doesn't have to uh, confront uh, the virus at all. Now, I, I still think this is a very bad solution because what it means is that you're leaving people with naive immune systems that actually makes them more vulnerable to disease later. But from a sociological, economic, um, and even moral point of view, it's it's a grim and primitive way to approach. Uh, viruses. I mean, this is what this is how India developed a caste system. Right? This is this is if you look at the way slave plantations in the 19th century worked, it was the way uh, the South dealt dealt all the time with diseases. Like let the slaves get them, and they were they were sickly all the time. They had much better immune system, but they were always sick, and so they had to bear the burden of disease. And and it was true in the ancient world too, right? So the ruling class would always hide from the disease and force everybody outside the big cities to to get it. And uh, I mean, there's one of the extraordinary things. It's, it's a typical feudal style uh, uh, approach to disease, very primitive. With modernity, uh, with with freedom and democracy and equal rights, we decided uh, to 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 use a fairer approach and to uh, have a social contract in the presence of pathogens, uh, so that no one group is more privileged than any other group. That we would not use the criterion of race or class or income or religion or language as a way of segregating society, but rather would use our intelligence to protect vulnerable populations regardless of their social, uh, social status, religion, or whatever else. So we use an age-based uh, focused protection policy and otherwise you know, ask that the rest of society go about its normal business so that we can share the, the burden equally with all mm -hmm. of us. So this is, this is the way free uh, democratic uh, modern people deal with disease. Not in this case. We, we chose a much more of a medieval approach, which actually the New York Times recommended. Mm. I mean, one of the one of the odd things actually has been a like almost a uh, the complete alternative to the argument that you're making in saying that by, by businesses who who for example want to open up. Um, I know this 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 debate went on in in my home city of of Belfast um, a few weeks ago, or not even last week. It must have been when uh, there was. Uh, the, the restrictions that had been put in place were coming to an end and there was discussion um, about whether it was going to go one way or the other. And the, right up until the last minute, the government hadn't decided whether they were going to allow bars and restaurants to open. And some restaurants and bars just came straight out and said, well, if you're not going to make a decision, we are going to open. And the immediate response from a lot of people, even though from, from a lot of people I've spoken to, they wanted to go out and work. Like people who I know in the hospitality industry um, were in, in places I used to work. Obviously, my, this is just the people I've spoken to, but they, they wanted to get back to working. And, and the, the narrative was painted that the, the, the owners of these businesses were sacrificing their workers. Like it was, it was being like painted as if they, they were being sacrificed at the altar of, of the economy. It, like these people were being sent out to their deaths for because they wanted to work or because the businesses wanted to open and it's it's such a paradoxical argument um i'm not quite sure how we got to the point where where the, the those who who would be on the left um more generally and and would be the ones who tended to care about things like suicide and the fact that the 
you know, people of uh, minority backgrounds or, or less well-off backgrounds are, have been worse affected by, by lockdowns in terms of mental health, in terms of like trying to perform their normal lives locked inside a house. And all of a sudden, the people who would normally come to the defense of, of the people who have been worst affected by mm -hmm. the lockdowns are suddenly pushing for the most stringent regulations. It's, yeah. it's such an odd like situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, it's, it's very strange. And, uh, and it's, it's the opposite of the truth. I mean, the, the truth is that the people who are ready to go back to their normal life and, and take the risk, which, by the way, we can talk about what that risk is. Mm. Um, but the people who are willing to take it are, in fact, society's benefactors. Because, again, there is no such thing as a zero COVID world. That will not happen not even when the vaccines get here. Uh, the goal of any uh, policy in the presence of pathogen is to make every pathogen endemic, which is to say regulated or um, uh, predictable and, and managed. And we're, we're headed towards an, uh, making uh, COVID-19 endemic in most parts of the world. Um, but in order to get there, you have to have uh, herd immunity. And, any, and people who are willing to take the risk and get out there to contribute to that are in fact benefactors of society and the people who are refusing to get out there because they think they're too good for it and they want the Amazon to deliver their foods <laughs> to their front door. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, now, so to me, that's a tremendously selfish uh, attitude to just hide in your home. And, and, and then it makes it worse that you actually congratulate yourself, uh, you know, by, for, for pretending not to be a, a, a spitter or something like that. It's just, it's, everything has been, you know, completely upside down. And you say the, the economic costs of this thing are devastating. Do you know that, that in the United States, we haven't had live music anywhere for a year. You change your whole life as a musician and suddenly, you know, you, you're, un, you're forcibly unemployed. You're, you're not allowed to delight, delight people and, and do what you're born to do. Your calling has been abolished by the government. It's, it's, it's absolutely despicable. Well, one of the one of the trade offs that, that essentially uh, I think this this discussion even on its own was uh, has is kind of not been encouraged or, or it's not been discouraged, but it's kind of been shied away from is the fact that, OK, so the, the question we have to ask is like, is is the cost of a lockdown and, and the, the destruction of, of of small businesses, especially of li the livelihoods of, of everyone in the in the performing arts, especially is is that like that trade-off, not just now, but over the next like 30, 40, 50 years in terms of right. like how long it takes for, for, for those businesses to come back if they will at all, how long it takes like children who are, who are missing out on time and not only learning in school, but like learning about social interaction in, in school and how long that's going to take to recover from that versus whether a, the, the deaths of uh, the, the, like every single one is obviously tragic like no one wants to lose a family member, but whether, whether the, the people who would die from, from, from COVID or, or, or complications from COVID, is that trade-off worth the, the, the incredible, like un, unfathomable, I think, like long-term consequences of, of just shutting down the world for an entire year? And um, the reason I asked you on was um, uh, initially to, to discuss this study that, that you wrote about um, that was done by the US military, which kind of suggests that, this the, the the lockdowns were essentially pointless like that that there was no um need for us to do that in order to that there was there was no way we could control like such a an infectious virus that 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 spreads asymptomatically amongst um like large portions of the population i mean there's very there's variation in the statistics as to how 
how how many people are asymptomatic who actually have it but like do should we should we go into the 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 military sure. study and, and what, yeah, what exactly they said I, I these studies are coming out almost every day there was one that's just a brand new study out this morning with six high-end authors using all this statistical uh correlations actually so we've got some beautiful graphics and things in there but they looked at um and what we care about is deaths, right? I mean, that's, that's it's severe outcomes from COVID. It's like, how do you minimize those? And they compared um, all these factors around the world that are correlated very highly with um, the rate of death. And they listed about 12 different things, you know, from um, uh, region, uh, uh, age, obesity, uh, you know, um, lives life expectancy, all these things. But one of the things they measured was a government stringencies, you know, what, travel restrictions, forced closures of bars and restaurants and so on. And of course, I mean, like I've read some of these studies now, I already know the conclusion of the study, but the conclusion of the study, and they said it very clearly, is there's no, no relationship whatsoever between uh, lives saved uh, at all and, and government stringencies. I mean, it's just, it's, there's not even a correlation so if you can't even generate a correlation, you can't even be begin to think about uh, a ca causation, right? So it, it's just not even on the map. And this is uh, something like the 20th study that's shown this. It's, this is just extremely bad science. The, the military study that you're referring to is a particularly interesting one. If, if I had been in charge, I would have done it differently. But they, they had a military-enforced um, uh, social you know, strategy lockdown, basically, with extreme social distancing, and you're not... <laughs> allowed to get closer to six feet to anybody else, which is utterly ridiculous. And, uh, you know, mandatory masks, very, very high-end masks, and, um, and uh, they, uh, you know, were really, uh, you know, had like much strict, stricter stringencies than you get in the normal uh, society. And they, they divided the, the uh, recruits into two groups, one that was willing to submit to uh, uh, t testing, ongoing testing, and then followed by a positive test yields to goes to isolation. The purpose of the study was to show um, that, you know, extreme stringencies plus testing and isolation can mitigate the disease. That, that's, I think that's, that's what was, what it was at issue here. And so the control group also faced stringencies, but they were tested at the end of three weeks rather than ongoing, and they didn't face the demand to be isolated from their roommate, such as the roommate is, if you never get closer to six feet. To this person. <laughs> uh, and so the idea was that, oh, we can show statistically significant the extent to which uh, imposing a, a military-enforced totalitarianism with testing and isolation, you know, can make this disease go away, right? So the, the results of the study published in the New England Journal of Medicine is that the group that was not tested, not isolated, actually uh, uh, had a um, lower rate of infection than the group that was. So, you know, in other words, if the study shows anything at all, it shows that none of the stuff is actually that these, this test, trace, isolate, uh, social distancing thing and, and mandated mandates, lockdowns um, work at all. So it, but, you know, it's funny that I wrote about this study first and I found that the whole thing, not surprising because I've just said so many of these things. But the New York Times actually, uh, you know, as they do often, they rendered it exactly the opposite conclusion. They said, you know, a New England Journal of Medicine, you know, published a study that shows that uh, testing isolation works. I don't know, you know, it's got, gotten so bad at the New York Times 
And there was this Danish mask, mask study, I guess maybe you followed that. It came mm-hmm. out yesterday. Yeah, and- no, I've been, I was reading a little bit on the results of it. I haven't, I haven't had a chance to fully delve into the, well, the it's science. Really, in it's, it. a, it's a complicated issue because the way the, the authors were forced to couch their, their language is so convoluted and confusing that, um, uh, that you can barely understand what it is they're saying. But you do get the sense that... Uh, you know, well, they had, I guess, like 6,000 people and 3,000 wore masks and 3,000 didn't. And then they test them at the end of this period and found um, there was no statistically significant difference between the two in terms of uh, uh, infections, right? So, which, you know, which is interesting because then they said, well, what this shows is that the masks do not protect the wearer, which is fa- a fascinating conclusion because America's Center for Disease Control had only... Uh, very recently said that uh, that that a mask is better than a vaccine. <laughs> Guy actually said that. It's like unbelievable. Uh, so this contradicts that. I said, but it doesn't say anything about so-called source control because uh, you might st- still be spreading that, uh, spreading the virus. So, but you know what's funny about that conclusion? It's very parsed out. Like I was trying to figure out how would you come up with a a similar study that checked the source control. I think you'd have to have. Um, uh, 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 two groups, and then each of those two groups divided between uh, case positives and case negatives, and let them run around separately, um, one with masks, one without, and then and then check that at the end of three weeks. So maybe then then you could test the source control. But a much more intuitive way to test this, more general question, which is, do masks work? Is just to have half wear masks and half not wear masks. This is a surgical mask, by the way, and see if there's any difference between the two. And the conclusion of the study is that there was no difference between the two. Mm-hmm. So, and so the, the lead author of the paper actually made a colloquial statement to the press. He said, we wanted to test to see if masks work. Our conclusion is that they do not. So <laughs> that's, you know, so. I mean, that seems look, fairly definitive from yeah, the author so of this the is, study. This, this is my life, you know, every day is, you know, this is like this blizzard of studies coming out showing one after another that most of what we did in 2020 uh, did nothing to reduce uh, the deaths. The deaths are associated with this disease, with, with age and comorbidities, which we already, we already, we've known this since, since uh, March, since really February we've known this. And that John Idenitis, who of uh, Stanford University said in, in middle of March, he said, we're about to embark on this grotesque social experiment with huge costs, with very little evidence that uh, it's going to do anything to, to achieve the results. And, and, and earlier this spring, this guy who had performed all sorts of serological tests um, from, his, from his labs in California, had come out with a statement that he thought that the infection fatality rate was far less than for, for, for people in the non-vulnerable groups than the seasonal flu. And he was pilloried and attacked and actually denounced by, by his colleagues. And then guess what happened last month? His study was just, uh, was just published by the World Health Organization. And he, uh, what he's proven is that there's an infection fatality ratio of 0.05% for anybody who's under the age of 70 and healthy. So that- What? Is, that yeah. is tiny. Yeah, it's like, small. Th- so hang on, 0.05% did you say? Yeah. 0.05%. So we need, obviously, that vaccine that is 94% effective because that is better than our immune systems for anyone under 70 that 
are 99.95% effective. Right. So it's, it's, it's basically, <laughs> if you wanted to put in plain terms, that's, that's one in 2000 exceptions to the rule that if you get COVID, uh, if you're healthy and under 70, you get it, you're going to get over it. That's, uh, you'll be either very asymptomatic or, or uh, get over it just fine. So that, that was the conclusion. And I'm, I'm, that's the best science that we have right now. That's what the World Health Organization says. So now we're getting this vaccine, and, which is a very interesting thing. I'm glad the vaccine's there and it's all good. I'm happy about it. But there's a couple of things to, to consider. One is, and, and, and every competent um, uh, immunologist says this, that, that naturally acquired immunities are safer and more effective than any vaccine for a mild respiratory illness like this. And it's even true for other things. You know, it's not even, it's not even clear whether the chickenpox vaccine is better than getting chickenpox, you know, when, if you get it young and like we used to do in the old days. So there's that fact. And the other thing is that naturally acquired immunities uh, tend to be uh, tend to be a little more uh, robust and sophisticated in the sense that they, they can share immunities across a variety of illnesses, um, not just this particular COVID-19, but it might also grant you some um, uh, shared immunities with flu, with other colds, with other things, and then those get burned into your T cells and, and live in your memories for you know years, if not your lifetime. Whereas uh, vaccines tend to be more specific related to a particular strain and our vaccines are just not that intelligent. Not, they've not been that intelligent with the flu. And that's why only 40% of, of people get the flu vaccine because they, they'd rather just get the flu, uh, take the risk and get the flu because um, that you want to have a good, uh, robust immune system. But the other thing is it's only most of the time 30% effective. So maybe this will be 95% effective, but there's a, there's a problem here. Uh, that is that if the risk for people under the age of, 40 or 50 or 60 or now 70 um, is so low, maybe you'd be better off just getting it. And that's a heck of a thing to say, but actually I felt that way since February. I'm, I've never been scared of this thing to tell you the truth. The other problem is, and this is actually a serious issue, and this was again, I'm sometimes I'm reluctant to name uh, the names of people I talk to because I don't, I don't know if they want to be quoted, but this is another uh, infectious disease expert who actually works on vaccine efficacy told me this. He said, the really serious problem is that for many of the dead, some portion of the dead, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's half, maybe it's 80%, maybe it's larger than that. The reason they die from COVID is they have non-functioning immune systems. Now, keep in mind that every vaccine requires that it attach itself. It's, it's like a booster shot for your immune system. But if your immune system doesn't work, the vaccine will not work either. So there are surely some portion of people who have died from COVID-19 who had functioning immune systems that, that could have been benefited from a vaccine, but we don't know how many uh, uh, of those people there, there are. Now, it's certainly worth taking risk and finding out, but it could be that for the most part, uh, the vaccine will either be um, for, for a large percent of the population, either unnecessary or unuseful uh, entirely. That's just a fact. Why do you think it is that the, the, even saying that, like you, you mentioned um, a doctor there from, from California who had done some research and mm -hmm. thought, like uh, suggested some things earlier in the year that then turned out to be true and was, was condemned by his, yeah. his colleagues. But, but even in the media, I, I've seen very, very, very little, like even acknowledgement that there is and has been since since the lockdowns began a debate as to whether 
they're effective or not uh, and and as to the whether the cost was worth it even even when when the science was was perhaps less clear in in march and and april and this is why i was actually hesitant to to ha have people on the show at mm -hmm. that time talking about sure. it was because i i just really didn't know um sure. and and it, like the the reason i want to do I, I've, I've asked you on now is because i feel that that it has to be said at this point right. because the, the evidence is there and is, is continually coming out. But yet there seems to be little to no debate in the media over this. Um, why do you think that is? They had a narrative from the very early days. And one of the things you find from the mass media is that once, the, once they get their story, they just tend to stick with it. And a lot of this comes down to uh, careers. Like Within the journalism profession, what they do is they look at the, the high-end publications where they eventually want to work someday, where they want to land. Like if you start off as a local crime reporter, well, you start off in the obituary page, you want to get promoted to the crime reporter, right? And, <laughs> and then you want to go to a regional newspaper, then you want to go to a national newspaper and so on. So everybody looks to the highest, most prestige journalistic outfits in the world and says, okay, I want to write things that are just like they write. And if you write something wrong as a journalist, this is true. You, do, you, do, you write a wrong story, you, will, you could lose your whole career for the rest of your life. So these people are really risk averse. So they tend to take their cues from the highest levels and I knew we were in trouble on February 27th when the New York Times, uh, instead, of doing what, instead of doing what they've always done in the presence of pathogens in the courts of the 20th century, which is to calm everybody down, encourage people if they get sick to go see the doctor, otherwise go about their normal business, which is what the New York Times told us to do in uh, 2006 and 2002 and 2003, and then also in 1968, 69, 57, 58, and all the way back to the 1940s when we dealt, uh, early 1940s when we dealt with the polio epidemic, New York Times is recommending calm and normal social function. It's like a responsible public health advice. This year was completely different. On February 27th, the New York Times did a podcast with Donald McNeil, their science reporter who has absolutely no background in science whatsoever. He has a degree in uh, rhetoric from Berkeley. Um, predicted on uh, this show, he, he said, unless we all just drop in place and isolate and live in our homes for, for months, uh, we will, there will be 6.6 .6 million deaths in this country. That's what he said. And I'm, 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 you know, it's the first thing in the morning, I'm listening to the New York Times podcast, and I thought, you know what? This podcast just sent out a, a, a message to the entire American media that it's time to panic and that we're gonna panic as long as possible. And it was about at that point that I started turning it off because I thought I can't learn anything from these people at this point. Um, it just got stuck in their heads. Now, there, kind of, there could have been a political motivation, you know, I think there certainly was. It was like, let's get Trump, let's uh, whip up a disease frenzy and then everybody will blame Trump for it. I think that might've been a factor here. But there's other deeper reasons too. Uh, one has to do with the fact that the modelers have become the modelers and, and these uh, social distancing uh, disease mitigators, they're not doctors, they're for the most part computer scientists, um, have had developed over the last 15 years an inordinate influence within the epidemiological professions. And they've been preparing for the next pandemic for a very long time. So the New York Times is talking to a lot of these guys that are out there and they're, they're still out there. And, but, you know, there's a lot of disagreements out there. The New York Times also ran in uh, the second week of March an article by David Katz, who's an infectious disease expert. And he said, look, the worst thing we can do is lockdown. It's going to, the, the cure will be worse than disease. And the best thing you do right now is live your normal life. 
uh, risk getting COVID and contribute to herd, herd immunity is go back to normal as soon as possible. That's what he wrote. So the New York Times ran that. But that was the exception. For the most part, they've been contacting these, these lockdown crazy people like Neil Ferguson and, and uh, London. There's many of these people in the United States. And they somehow believe that they can manage the disease implausibly without any evidence. They think they could try this incredible uh, experiment. The other thing is that the media is all the overclass, right? The blue check mark people who actually don't bear the burden and would rather not take the risk of getting the disease. So they're, they're writing articles from their living rooms and puffy house slippers and enjoying their new lives and pretty, pretty happy with it. A lot of eyeballs, you know, everybody's reading the press now, you know, so that, there's a sense in which the media has, has benefited from this thing. I mean, look at the New York Times stock price. I mean, it's through the roof. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of, there's, I don't think there's one reason why things have been so bad. There's just been a lot of reasons, but at the same time, I don't think that we're going to get through the rest of this year with this crazy narrative that lockdowns work in place because the science is too clear. Uh, the truth is getting out there. Uh, I noticed, I've been anti-lockdown since January, right? I've been writing about this topic, topic uh, the whole time. Uh, but but it, was, it was a lonely struggle in March and April, you know? And then it started growing and growing and growing. Now, uh, there's, there's giant lockdown movements, anti-lockdown movements all over the world, you know? In the United States, certainly, even though we're not out in the streets for whatever reason, I don't know why. But yeah, the street protests in Spain, Italy, and Germany, and even in Denmark, where they reversed uh, a wicked law. And things are growing in Ireland, too. I don't know if you saw, uh, we published this morning, the American Institute for Economic Research, a beautiful uh, report signed by something like 60 scientists and doctors that was prepared uh, in, 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 uh, in Ireland. Uh, about the disaster of lockdowns. And, and that didn't get a lot of attention, but I'm giving it more attention this morning by publishing it on our website. So we're breaking through gradually. Mm. The Irish, that Irish study sounds interesting. Um, I will be sure to check that out um, and I'll put it in the description for anyone that's yeah, listening. It's the top item uh, this morning on, um, on the, uh, the AIER.org. We put it up there, publish the whole thing. It's really good, really, really good. It's, it, just, it just makes good sense. I mean, that's, that's the thing about a lot of these, um, I'm, I'm describing it as anti-lockdown, it makes them sound like crazy radicals, you know, out in the streets or something like this. No, this is just cell biology uh, combined with good public health advice. You know, that's all it is. You know, we came out with a great Barrington Declaration that was signed by Martin Kuldoff at Harvard and Jay Bhattacharya of, of Stanford and the brilliant, ever so brilliant, um, uh, theoretical epidemiologist, Sinatra Gupta at Oxford. And it was co-signed by another 40,000 scientists, right? And it was a very plain statement, not that long. It was like, you know, about 850 words or something like that, saying, you know, we should protect the vulnerable and everybody else should go about their lives as normal. And do you know that that thing has been trending in the news now for a complete month? I've never seen anything like it. I mean, just the amount of praise and the amount of attacks, the amount of hysteria and everything. As a, all three of the authors are, you know, get a thousand emails a day asking for interviews and that sort of thing. It's a long struggle. Uh, Bhattacharya told me, I guess, two days ago that he thinks we're halfway to, to winning the debate, halfway there. So I think that's pretty good. Well, that's, that's pretty positive. I mean, the, the, one of the things that, that really struck me actually is that uh, I was watching an interview with Dr. Michael Yeardley, I think it was, um, and he was t discussing the excess death numbers um, mm. as like a good metric for understanding like where we were in terms of our progression towards the uh, towards herd immunity, especially essentially. And he thinks that half of the UK may have been immune in June, 
because the excess death numbers were were way up there in 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 March and April at the at the height mm-hmm. of the of the hospitalizations and deaths. But after that, there is essentially not no excess deaths that have occurred. Like the amount of people that have died has been very consistent with our five, 10 year averages over the past like five months since, since the absolute peak of it. And, and his suggestion is basically like, you know, people, people called herd immunity callous and, and, and like sacrificing those who, who decided that, that were the sacrificing frontline workers and people in bars and restaurants who, who, who would maybe be most at risk, like the people, the, the, like the front facing like workers of our, of our society, like suggesting that that was sacrificing them when at the same time, we, we may have already achieved that without even attempting it. And, yeah. and it kind of suggests to me that like, like, actually I wanted to ask you, what is the, why do you think people have got the idea in their head that they can have like a like a zero covid strategy as such like why why do you think we think we can no why do we think we can control something that is like that was from the very start like said to be incredibly infectious and and an airborne virus like we've known that for for months now and we still seem to continue with this idea that we we can control it like it's and uh, the, like that military study was a perfect example of mm-hmm. of 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 why that's that's just a, a complete fallacy but why do you think mm-hmm. we have that in our head because i don't think i've ever experienced or read or 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 had the, like seen any examples of uh, where we think we could control something like that no um and one of the things we do need to understand is that uh, there is this fascinating inverse relationship between severity and prevalence um, in any kind of pathogen. So for example, Ebola is very uh, uh, angry, uh, but stupid, right? So it comes on and it kills, you know, it shows up and it, it kills a ton of people, but then it can't, if you kill your host, you can't find any, any, any new hosts and the virus burns itself out. Um, but uh, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 is, is a very intelligent uh, because it just, it doesn't kill its hosts typically, unless you're very old, unless you have a, li- a short life expectancy to begin with. This is generally true. There are always exceptions, you know, but, and so therefore it's going to be widespread. Um, so I think, well, which is one more comment on SARS-CoV-1. Um, I think a lot of people thought that, that SARS-CoV-1 was in 2002 and uh, 2003 and hit mostly the Far East. Um, it never really came to the United States, but it was also a very, very, like, I think, I think it has like a 30% infection fatality rate. It was like something, it was truly terrible. A lot of people thought that um, SARS-CoV-2 was going to be a replication of SARS-CoV-1, except that it was going to come to the U.S. And so that, you know, there was a lot of the statistical assumptions there were, uh, were, were drawn from SARS-CoV-1. So that, there was the idea that we got to suppress it because otherwise it's going to kill everybody. But again, this forgets this, this trade-off between prevalence and severity. The other thing that it forgets is the uh, heterogeneity of the, of the risk, right? And so like if you look at Neil Ferguson's models or the IHME models that come in out of the United States, they all assume a homogeneous risk across all population groups. And that's just completely false. So there's those two assumptions. But I, I think your question speaks to something a little more um, philosophical, which is like, I mean, if I'm going to summarize your question, it's like, how did we get so stupid? <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, I maybe and, wouldn't be that harsh about it, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me just tell you a quick story because, um, and I might get the dates slightly wrong here, but this is very interesting. 
the apparently humanity does have variously uh, and has shown to have the capacity to forget what we knew. Uh, like we'll have a settled science and people understand it. It's all public uh, information. Then it's gone. And the classic case of this is scurvy. So when, uh, when uh, tr travel on, on boats across uh, large bodies of water over, over many weeks and months uh, became technologically possible, they noticed that people started getting this strange disease with bleeding gums and they eventually died. And then somebody discovered that the answer was to uh, was vitamin C deficiency, which can be uh, fixed through lemons, limes, and oranges, and things like that. And so people started carrying those on boats, and it was very common. And so scurvy basically went away, and they, they realized what, what the cause and cure of scurvy was. Um, incredibly, about 300 years went by, and there had been no scurvy. Uh, and people uh, gradually forgot uh, the, the cause and the cure of scurvy. And people stopped bringing you know, fastidiously eating, you know, consuming vitamin C products on, on boats. And scurvy came back and nobody could figure out why. And uh, months went by, uh, really years went by, before, before people realized, oh, this is scurvy. Uh, we had this problem 300 years ago and they fixed it through lemons, you know. And so, so humanity had to weirdly had forgotten uh, the science and had to rediscover it because the problem had gone away. So I tell that story because I think something happened in immunology and in our management of viruses that we got so used in the 20th, late latter part of the last 25 years of the, of the 20th century, so used to everything being cured by vaccines. And, and uh, we, we, we developed a kind of uh, what's, what doctors call a mysophobia or a germophobia. It's like all pathogens are bad, keep them all out, give me shots to protect me from, from all pathogens. And we, we, we forgot how to have a, that little dance that we do with uh, viruses that we've done for, for a million years. We forgot how to do that dance. And uh, so this comes along and it was, it was not expected. Like people had not mentally or psychologically prepared themselves for the presence of a pathogen. Uh, and instead of dealing with it intelligently, everybody just uh, kind of Panic. I mean, not everybody. There's a lot of us that that understood. Uh, now, I'll tell you. Uh, um, and and ironically, older people uh, have a have a much better relationship with with pathogens. These are older people who um, who understand that that your immune system is, adapts uh, in the presence of of dangers and upgrades itself. When so, like when this first came along, I was going to see my mother, who's 80. And I was a little concerned about it. I thought, well, you know, I don't want to bring her COVID, you know, if I have it. And uh, so I called her up and said, Mommy, I'm thinking about uh, not coming because she said, well, look, I, I understand why you say that. I, just, I would rather see you even if, even if it takes the risk because I love you so much. I'd rather take the risk. But, but if you don't feel comfortable with that, just wait. Um, give it a month because what happens with these diseases is they spread very widely. Young people who are not vulnerable to it, obviously we know this, will get it, we'll, we'll get immunities to it, and then the threat will go away, then you can come. So just give it, give it a month. That's what she said to me, all right? Now, later I called her back and I said, Mom, how is it that you knew so much about this, whereas the New York Times virus reporters seem, don't seem to know anything about it? She goes, well, I was, I was taught that in, in ninth, ninth grade biology. And my mother was taught that too. And uh, she said, I don't understand why people have forgotten uh, these lessons in the presence of a, a widespread and ultimately mild 
respiratory illness, the answer is to, is to get it, get over it and get immune and move on with your life. She was taught that, her mother was taught that. It was a huge priority of the public health community after World War II to get people out of a medieval style mindset towards disease and upgrade and become modern people. Uh, something happened, I don't think it was even my generation because I think it happened right after my generation that people got really stupid about viruses because when I was, when I was in second grade, um, my parents excitedly uh, announced to me that we were going to a party at a friend's house. And to my shock, the entire second grade class was there. And we all played and ruffle and tumble and we had fun together. And I came home and the next day I woke up with red spots all over me. <laughs> and, and, and my parents said, yeah, that's a chicken pox. And I said, congratulations, very happy for you. Here's some ice cream. You can watch TV all day. We're very happy for you. And I said, well, how can you be? I, I got red spots all over me. How, how can you be happy? that I have a disease. I mean, how does that, how does that work? They said, I know it doesn't seem normal, but this is chickenpox. Everybody's going to get it at some point in your life. You need to get it now where it doesn't leave scarring on you. And then you develop this lifetime of, of immunities to it. So this is, this is a good thing. So this is for me, a really profound experience in my life because it helps you, it helps you, I don't want to say, helps you not be afraid. It helps you think more scientifically, you know? Well, uh, to my shock, um, you know, maybe 10 years after that happened, 15 years after that happened, there's a, there's a, a, a vaccine. And, and the reason for the vaccine for, for chickenpox is they said, well, the problem with getting chickenpox is you can still get shingles later on in life. The vaccine protects both from chickenpox and, and shingles. So it's, it's better than naturally acquired immunities. Okay, I, I can't really speak to that. Maybe that's true. But the problem is you have a whole generation, I would say basically everybody under 40, who um, never really developed a sophisticated view towards uh, pathogens and diseases. And, and instead, they just, they just broke out into a fear. Um, maybe they're teaching this stuff in ninth grade biology, uh, but they're, you know, instead of paying attention, they're checking their Instagram or something. I'm not sure what's going on. But, you know, when this whole thing came out, I thought, well, yeah, I wonder... I wonder what the textbooks say. So I downloaded all the books from Amazon. Um, one of my favorites called Cell Biology for Dummies. It's, it's a great, great book. It explains herd immunity. It explains immunity. It explains everything. It doesn't recommend lockdowns in the presence of a path. It was ridiculous. And so I checked other first-year medical textbooks for, uh, for students. I looked up herd immunity, looked up uh, immunology. And the, the advice has not changed on the part of the profession. It's still the same as when my mother was a young girl. Uh, the problem is that people just don't know about it anymore. And, and this lack of knowledge has replaced intelligence with fear. And then that fear feeds into this acquiescence to uh, go along with um, political power and to let, and let yourself be manipulated into thinking that the politicians can, can somehow solve this for us, which is completely untrue. But mm -hmm. I would just say it was just a case of lost knowledge fueled by uh, media panic and, and fear more than anything else. Look, I don't have the answers. It's going to be years of trying to figure out what the heck happened in 2020. 2020 you know yeah yeah you can say that again i mean as long as we don't <laughs> as long as this is, is is this is one of the 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 most shocking and um roller coaster years that we experience like you never know what's coming around the corner like i guarantee that like, i always make the joke that the people in 1938 when when hitler invaded czechoslovakia they were like oh i can't get much worse than this um <laughs> 
I've been saying that almost every day all year. I mean, it's just, and, you know, as long as you bring this up, you know, it's been a big concern of mine. It's a psychological cost. I mean, I feel like my cell phone has been a suicide hotline now for a good part of the year, you know, talking people out of their desperation and their sadness, you know, and, and that sadness comes about um, because of such a shocking changes in our life. You know, you, you, if you have a friend in Paris, they can't come visit you. You can't go visit, you can't go visit Paris. You can't go to the movies. You can't go to Broadway shows. Uh, for a lot of places, you can't go to bars. And if you go to bars, you can't sit at the bar. You've got to engage in this crazy kabuki dance and sit around with plexiglass between. It's, everything's so crazy and people's lives have been so shattered that, and, and their freedoms have been taken away, you know? And that's what leads to the depression and the despair. Mm. Uh, it's just a sense that, like, God, I, I, I used to think I had human rights and I had opportunities ahead of me and life was good. Now, I don't have human rights. My freedoms are gone. Life is terrible. And people really sometimes wonder why they're going on. And we've seen skyrocketing suicides, you know, a lot of places. It's hard to document this entirely, but a lot of anecdotal evidence. But we'll know. We'll know within a year. Not to mention, you know, the, uh, one of the worst things that happened this year, it's happened, and they're still going on. Um, is that uh, these politicians have decided what, what, how we're going to use medical services. So they're rationing medical services to, to spare them for COVID-19, even in the absence of cases or hospitalizations. The hospitals in the United States completely emptied out. Uh, 350 hospitals in the United States furloughed workers uh, this year because they didn't have any patients, because the governors said, said the medical services can only be used for COVID-19. So no cancer screenings. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, and you know, no, so-called elective surgeries were were eliminated, and only non-electives, meaning that you ha- you have to be about to die before you can get to see a doctor. I mean, isn't it incredible that in the midst of uh, of a of a pandemic that that we would see the underutilization of medical services like we've never seen in like a hundred years? I yeah. mean, it's amazing. And then dentistry. Now, here's a very weird thing. I'll just tell you a quick story about this. Um, I think it was back in the spring. Uh, I thought maybe I had a root canal I needed. To, it turns out I didn't, thank God. But I thought maybe I needed one. So I called. I live in Western Massachusetts. So I called all the dentists in town and said, hey, can you do a root canal for me? No, nope, it's not an emergency. Uh, we can't see you. Well, wait, are you a new patient? We can't accept any new patients. So I called like 15 dentists around. I couldn't get, a, uh, couldn't get services. I thought, this is pretty strange. So I called up my mother, who lives in Texas. I said, Mom... Um, listen, I have a really good dentist there. I may need a root canal, so I may take a flight in. She goes, oh, no problem, no problem. So she called up the dentist and said, hey, my son is going to be coming to town. Can you give him a root canal if he needs it? And they said, well, we can't really. He has to quarantine for two weeks before we can see him. And so I said, I said to my mother, I said, you know, in two weeks, a root canal could become debilitating. You know, that, that's potential. And plus, I can't leave my work for two weeks and come down there and see as much as I'd like to. It's just not possible. So I said to her, I said, well, how about this? Uh, You make the appointment for me. I show up the day before, and then you just tell them that I've been in Texas for two weeks. And she said, you want me to lie to the dentist? And I said, yeah, never mind, mom. I'm not going to ask you to lie for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's a, a sudden weird realization I had that we that I had no access to dentistry, 
you know, and which is, yeah, very much like the Middle Ages, right? So we did go medieval on this disease. We even mm. got rid of dentistry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as long as you didn't call someone to hit you over the head and do the procedure in your garage, I mean. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think a, a, a homemade root canal would be pretty tough. Mm, probably. <laughs> But like what you're saying speaks to something that I've been, I've been thinking about for quite a few months. And like the, one of the things I've been kind of concerned about, like not just this year, but over the last sort of year or two, maybe longer, but like it's only something that's really come to my mind is, is was the, that, that, like we've been talking about the, this loneliness epidemic and like mm -hmm. the, the loss of social contact. And I've read, read a couple of books on like digital minimalism and, and like sort of rediscovering the joy and like actual mental and physical health benefits of, of spending time with people, like quality, like interaction, like th something that's just been part of our, our, our species evolution for millions of years. Like it's, it's literally the reason that humans like are, are, have you know spanned the planet and created all these wonderful awful fantastic destructive technologies is because we we talk to each other and like the communication and like just the the benefits of of having like social contact with people sure. and and kind of stripping that away uh, is is such a huge thing to remove from from people's lives like they had like no one has ever tried that like ever i mean save for the black death like literally save for that like no one has ever considered saying you cannot see your family your friends your your work colleagues just like the the you cannot see your social circle and you're gonna stay inside like just that is 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 was was mind-blowing to me and when i started to realize that there wasn't actually that much justification for such right. a huge and like completely unprecedented undertaking it it really started to concern me a little bit um like i remember when when the when the pandemic first started so i was working in in austria and i got told to go home and we had to close the bar i was working in and and we i, I came back and my mom had tested positive and i had to, to quarantine with her for a few weeks and and i think i'd already had it in february while i was working there because i could hit with this horrendous flu but um I, I i went back and then when my mom first tested positive i was i was like i was concerned for it because she's she's immunosuppressed um because of the the medication she's on for her arthritis and i was really sitting thinking like right, right, what what happens if she's she has to go in the hospital or, or, or like lungs shut down and and there was this rule in the uk where i don't know what it was like in america but if you're mother or, or father or any member of your family was in like a an ICU ward or they were in like a room by themselves and yeah. their lungs were shutting down and they were going to die. They were literally going to die that there, I was not allowed in that room. And I was just terrified at yeah. having to be dragged out of the hospital by the police because yeah. I, pro I was just like, I, I, I propose to you that you try to stop me. Like you just please attempt to stop me saying goodbye to my dying mother. Right. And like even that tiny example of, of things that were taken away from people is, is a really shocking and, and it's, it's, it's dehumanizing in, in a, in a weird way. And I, I, I'm concerned that we, we never get past this. Like sometimes that we, we'd never get back to like real interaction with people. That surely will change. I mean, I think there's going to be a big backlash coming and sooner rather than later. Um, 
so you mentioned the psychological costs of isolation and, and that sort of thing. Uh, there's also a, a medical cost to this because we need to be around other people and diverse uh, environments and strangers and cities. And we need to go to theaters and hang, sit next to a person that we otherwise never sit, sit next to so that we can be exposed to a variety of, of, uh, uh, of uh, so, so we can beef up our immune systems. It's really, really important. Uh, Sinatra Gupta made this point to me that after 1918, when international travel and immigration and trade really took off as never before, uh, what happened was that the human, the, the, the modal human immune system got you know, massively stronger than it had ever been in the history of the world. So, so in the old days, immune systems were typically very na naive because we lived in much more isolated uh, ways. And so disease couldn't spread all over the world. And so what happens with a naive immune system is the first pathogen comes along, even if it's mild, wipes out the whole community. It's typical uh, what happens to primitive tribes. This, this happened to people all over the world for centuries and centuries. But in the 20th century, we really changed that precisely because of the interactions with so many different people from all over the world that, um, that we had bacteria and, and, and viruses spreading all over the place and our immune system adapted. And that's a major reason why we started living these long, long lives. And I mean, if you look at the expansion of lifespans in the 20th century, it's absolutely shocking. I was trying to make some adjustments. We were looking at the death toll in the United States for, for the um, Hong Kong flu in 1968-69. Okay, right now we live on an average of 78 years. Uh, back in 68-69, we lived to we lived to like 68 years, you know? And then you go back 10 years earlier, it was like 63, you know, 57, 58. So once you adjust the death figures for uh, uh, deaths per millions of population and for the age differential, uh, then um, you could argue that 57, 58, and 68, 69 were, were much, much worse than, uh, than, than 20, uh, 2020. But one of the reasons that we're living such long lives is that we've, we've, we've gotten just healthier, better, and stronger uh, through exposure. So we're reversing all that. And it's, I've had uh, serious disease experts warn, uh, tell me that they're very concerned about this winter because there's millions of, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people who have spent the whole year in isolation, you know, and, and, and they're, their immune systems are getting worse and worse and worse, dousing ourselves with hand sanitizer, incessantly washing our hands until they're you know, cracked and dried. And, um, and we're getting weaker and weaker. Now we're going into the winter months, uh, you know, the flu season and so on. And it could actually, there could be a tremendous uh, human cost to this. We need the interaction, not just for, for our psychological well-being and economic health of our societies, but then it turns out, ironically, we need it for medical uh, reasons too, to ward off disease. Wow, I had not thought even that. I had not even considered that that might be a possibility. Like a friend of mine had, give, had, had like made a throwaway comment to me um, like a few months ago just about, he's like, yeah, we, we don't know like what sort, of, what sort of thing that we're setting off by trying something that we've never tried in like the masks and the isolation. And he was like, yeah, well, we don't know what, what's going to happen with, with a disease when you do that. And I kind of just sort of dismissed it as like, well, I mean, that's just sort of idle speculation, but the, 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 <laughs> I'm pretty like shocked to find out that there's actually something, something to that. And coming from yeah. um, Sinatra Gupta, that's, that's something that's yeah, she, taken she quite just seriously. Has this ex yeah. It's extraordinary uh, vision. I, I never thought of that before like that, that the strength of our immune system is, is a, 
substantially uh, important for for why we're living such longer lives now than it was in the past. So we're we're actually reversing the progress of history here in an immunological sense. You know, so um, we could see excess deaths just go through the roof um, over the next uh, few months, and whether anybody will realize this is due to the isolation that we forced on so many people is another question. But medically, this is very terrible. One of the things that's so bad about this is that these, these disease mitigators and these modelers immediately went to the idea of, of, of isolation as the, as the answer, whereas in fact the answer was probably, was, and so then of course you had to get rid of sports events and gatherings and, and uh, theaters and movies and that kind of stuff because that's where people hang out together. But actually, that's probably the exact reverse of the advice. What you really want in the presence of a, of a novel virus, as they say, every virus is not, every new virus is a novel virus, but is, is for these activities to continue on uh, so that we can, we can upgrade our immune system. It's like downloading the latest uh, version of iOS. You know, you really, you don't want to be running Windows 95 in 2020, and you don't want a 2019 uh, immune system in 2021. You know, you want, you want it upgraded and, and that upgrade can happen very naturally and very safely. And it was exactly that upgrade that we decided uh, not to uh, pursue. It was terrifying in this country. March 8th, we got rid of South by Southwest. Um, this is a big conference that attracts something like 250,000 people in Austin, Texas. And they had just abolished it. They said, no, we're not going to have that. Well, I can just tell you, you know, based on the demographics of, of fatalities of COVID-19, there wasn't anybody there who's vulnerable to this thing. There were, there were no, nobody but above 80 with comorbidities attending South by Southwest in Austin, Texas in March. That's completely crazy. There's mostly healthy young people. And, you know, what's, what's funny, too, I don't know how much you follow U.S. news, but in the spring, we had spring break, and all the students went out and uh, partied on the beaches. And the news media, pearl clutching, you know, oh no, look what they're doing, they're spreading disease. But there wasn't a single death. Well, there was one Uber driver, I guess. But there were, there were, there were millions of people doing this. And there, there was never any documentation of any fatalities as a result of that. In fact, it spread uh, herd immunity and contributed in a benevolent way to helping get, get through this disease. So. Our, our governments have pursued exactly the opposite policies of what you want in these cases. I mean, and how many have apologized for it? That's the other thing that's actually alarming. You know, like, like what Boris Johnson has done to England is absolutely appalling. And, but he, you know, he's not apologized for this. As far as I know, the only statesman in the whole world who's apologized and said, okay, we pursued the wrong policies was the prime minister of Pakistan. But, he said, oh, that was a mistake. Locking down is terrible for the poor. I'm really sorry. I just panicked and I did the wrong thing. But as far as I know, he's the only one. But every one of these people has to apologize, from Boris Johnson to Andrew Cuomo to, to, to the governor of California, all of them. They all need to apologize. I mean, Gavin Newsom probably more so than many. Yeah, right, <laughs> He's right. Im imposing rules like he had. Well, he, he he had a meeting of all of the, 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 the California like medical association at his house to discuss locking people down. Like they, <laughs> he invited yeah. them round to, to yeah. decide that people wouldn't be allowed to be invited round to people's house. That was, yeah. that was, that was a special kind of. Um, and then you've got a, another problem in Australia and New Zealand where they actually have like, in a very selfish and wicked way, decided to lock down their, their societies and keep everybody else out and deliberately try to create naive immune systems among their whole population. It's not worked. Mm. And, 
you know, every time they claim that it's work, they're like, oh, look, we got, you know, like this happened in Melbourne, you know, this, I forget the guy's name, some, some, some dictator there, uh, mm-hmm. locked everybody in their homes for something like a month and then drove cases down to zero and said, look, we won. And then they came back and then they went away. And yeah, there's a new lockdown in, in uh, South Wales in Australia. Yeah. So, yeah. And that was a very interesting case because they had uh, internal travel restrictions for a good part of this year. So if you were in Sydney, you couldn't get to Melbourne. If you're Melbourne, you couldn't get to Perth. If you're Perth, you couldn't get to, uh, uh, to Adelaide and so on. And so they opened up about two weeks ago, some borders and boom, just like, of course, they're a little hotspot of infections, 20, no deaths, just infections. Uh, they, they documented tw- the existence of 20, 20 infections. They immediately, uh, South Australia locked down again and closed its borders. They can't, how long are they going to keep this up? Five years, 10 years? They'll destroy their entire economy. And same with New, New Zealand. Uh, everybody thinks they did a good job mitigating the disease there. Nope. All they've done is uh, isolated the population from the pathogen. I don't know how they think they can keep this up. They can't. Maybe they're waiting for a vaccine and they think that that's going to take care of it. I don't know. But this is... This is egregious public policies. Uh, let me say something real quickly about Taiwan, the case of Taiwan, because I think that's an interesting case. Now, um, if you just look at it on the face of it, and I, I can't remember the exact data, but they had very, very low uh, infections. Um, they only had, I think, uh, you know, under 20 deaths in the entire country. This is a high population densities. And they did, they did almost no testing. That's probably one of the reasons they had very low cases, but almost no deaths. And uh, of all the states in the world, if you look at the stringency indexes, uh, Taiwan was far lower than Sweden. They, they did almost nothing. There were no controls and very low mask use in the entire country. And COVID didn't bother them at, at all. So that's, that's an interesting question. So I... Uh, I've been kind of looking into this. I assigned a graduate student here uh, to, to uh, find out what studies were done about it. But my intuition, based on what I heard from other scientists tell me, is they had a big outbreak of SARS-CoV-1 in, in 2002 and 2003. And it's a relatively healthy young population. Uh, but now all, but there have been widespread exposure to SARS-CoV-1. So you, you get shared immunities and T-cell memories from a very similar but much more severe disease. And that protected the entire population against SARS-CoV-2. So they had no strategies whatsoever and the lowest death rate uh, per million in the world. So it's a very interesting case where you can see the power of, of immunities here are much more significant than any government policies. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting, actually. I wasn't aware their death rate was that low. Um, that's that's crazy. I mean, I, I think it probably speaks to the idea that there is probably far more factors than we are even like considering at the moment that are are contributing to where had like a worse outbreak. Like the it's probably nothing to do with the the, the stringencies of right. of the lockdown and like, like for example, I've heard some people talk about the 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 air quality in in certain places um and the the levels of air pollution which are like well known to to contribute heavily to like your prevalence to to contract like a respiratory disease mm-hmm. um and people pointed to the fact that um the area in italy whose name is completely 
um, escaping my brain right now. But the area in Italy that got really badly hit um, early on in the pandemic that kind of made everyone else uh, mm-hmm. freak out. Had, or, have, Italy, yeah. yeah, that ha- have have generally quite a poor air quality there and, and high levels of air pollution just because of the, the way that the, the valley tends to trap air between the, the cold air sitting on top and the hot air coming up the valley and it tends to create this really like poor air air quality. I mean like the city I'm in right now, Innsbruck, they they have the same issue. Um although they've had uh, far less they had far less um confirmed cases or deaths in the in the early part of the 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 pandemic. But yeah, I just I feel like there's probably a lot more um than than is being considered and the the idea that we can control it is uh yeah, yeah is and, in the case of northern italy too you had a demographic issue you know you had an, a really aging population one of the oldest populations in all of europe and quite frankly a very unhealthy population so uh so a lot of a lot of people had very slow, low life expectancies demographics matter a lot like i was comparing Sweden with his neighbor with his neighbors and Sweden had a higher death per million than his neighbors Sweden had very low levels tendencies but it only took me a few minutes to google around and find out that um, the its neighboring neighboring countries had a a, a much lower pop, um, younger population um, I can't remember the exact data but it was it was surprising it was like instead of uh, instead of uh, 20% of its population above the age of 80 or above the age of 70, it was something like 15%. So, and that almost accounts for all the differences in the deaths between the two, between the two countries. It's just, mm. it's just a demographic issue. Wow. I didn't, yeah. I did not know that either, yeah. actually. Um, something, something a friend of mine pointed to actually was the availability of ICU beds and to treat in terms of like uh, the, the deaths per million uh, was the number of ICU beds that were available to treat people who got severe symptoms be. um, being a, an indicator of how well a, a country dealt with it. But um, to sort of move towards wrapping up here, um, as I'm, I'm sure you're a busy man, you've got lots, to, lots of studies to read on. <laughs> but yeah. um, just like, what would you recommend to, to any, any government right now? Like, what would be your suggestion for a move forward? Because, I mean, you, you've said at the start there that you're not, you're not suggesting that we shouldn't try and protect uh, demographics um, and people that are vulnerable to to respiratory right. diseases um, or or COVID, for example, that that, that plays on um, in some cases like uh, previous or be un, unlo- uh, unknown or underlying heart problems um, can exacerbate things like that um, and can can like hit hit people who are vulnerable re- really badly and, and and yeah lead them to die. But like, what would you suggest? is the the way forwards at this point for for uh, to, for policy we have to devolve decision making down to uh, the to the units themselves so a long term uh, care facility has to be uh, allowed to make its own um, decisions about about uh, how much risk they're uh, tolerating from their from their residents and and they have to be aware as they are very much aware now not so much in the spring but they're very aware now of the vulnerabilities of certain elements of the population, and they need to keep uh, COVID-19 out of there. Uh, but, but everybody else needs to go about their lives so that we can quickly build up a herd immunity and, and so that we can uh, allow older Americans to get back to, to normal again. That, that's always what we've done in the course of the 20th century. You know, um, There's nothing new about this. We get, this is how we got through 2006 and 2009 and 2002 and how we dealt with the things in 68, 69, 57, 50. This is how we've always done things and then otherwise let people assess their own risk levels 
and make judgments about themselves and, and otherwise go about, their, go about their business. I feel like if we just released all the strategies immediately, people could make rational decisions and go about their lives, whether that involves wearing masks or not, or going out in public or not. Um, every magazine that's targeted towards older Americans for the last 50 years has had the same advice to people. Um, don't go into large crowds during the flu season, right? So we've known this already. And people are smart. People are intelligent. The problem is that we didn't trust people to make their own best judgments in this case. We overrode everybody's decisions with the big central plans that have not uh, done anything. And governments have treated everybody as if they're all equally at risk, which is just not true. It's just completely untrue. So we need to get rid of the stringencies as, as far as possible, go back to, to, to normal life uh, so that we can make intelligent decisions uh, to protecting the people who are actually vulnerable. And that's what I wrote in my book. I wrote a, a, a book that came out last month, Liberty or Lockdown, and it's entire history of this lockdown idea. I reconstructed uh, some of the intellectual history here and went through a lot of the studies as I knew them then. Um, uh, the book's done very well on Amazon, and it's one of many anti-lockdown books that are out there. I tried not to make it depressing. <laughs> so, it's been a depressing year, but just just an effort to help people understand what's happened and why. I don't think it's a result of some big conspiracy, a great reset, you know, a, a, the communists taking over the world or anything like that. I, just, I think this is just a consequence of some terrible intellectual errors on our part. And, and we forgot what we once knew, and now we're having to learn it all over again in some of the most painful ways. Mm. I mean, the funny thing about that great reset phrase is it's, it's not new. It's uh, something that was used by the first, I think, used by the RAND Corporation like five years ago to mm. discuss. And then, and then it became this thing that, that you weren't allowed to use that phrase or you'd get shadow banned or banned on social media. And then after that, like, like in the last few weeks, loads of like world leaders have started using it um, to discuss it. It's amazing. It went from like, like a thing discussed by like people like trying to figure out the future of the world or where it's going to go. Like, 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 I don't know if you're a pure conspiracy theorist, you call them the globalists. If you're a normal person or, or just a, uh, on the street, you're going to call them billionaires. Um, <laughs> and then it became like a conspiracy theory term, totally banned. And now it's being used by world leaders. It's, it's it, like that, that phrase has been on a roller coaster. Right. Like, and then <laughs> time magazine, uh, the American magazine, uh, time, time dedicated an entire issue. To it with something like 20 essays. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. So much, for, so much for being a cranky conspiracy theory. Mm, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's a nice note to leave it on. So uh, Jeffrey, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the links in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.